0: can do this. We are going to finish the chapter today. Thank you. A guy actually challenged me uh, to cover more than two verses. He thought it would be uh, nigh unto a miracle. Anyway, so we're going to finish the chapter uh, today just so that I could uh, win the bet. No, we didn't bet, but... uh... Genesis 35. Listen, we're going to start in verse 6, but let me fill you in as you turn there. Genesis 35, verse 6. It's a narrative about Jacob's exploits. He's been away for 20 years. He comes back into the land, but doesn't go in the land to the place he was supposed to go to, Bethel. He settles in Shechem, Shechem, which I mentioned to you is modern-day Nablus in the West Bank today. He stayed there for 10 years. Lots of trouble happened. His daughter was raped. His sons went crazy and killed a lot of people. They carried off Canaanite women and children. Just bad stuff. And uh, Jacob's in trouble, and he's beginning to see that drifting from God doesn't pay off. He knows God. He met him years prior at Bethel, which he named the House of God. Uh, But over the years, he's drifted and done his own thing, and the loving God kind of lets us do that so that we can see the consequences thereof. Uh, But God is always there. God was as much with Jacob at Shechem as he will be in Bethel. The difference is um, when we're on the run from God, we can't experience his love, his joy, his peace, all of those things. So the relationship might be there, but the quality of fellowship with him uh, is really minimized. So, but, but now Jacob is heeding God's invitation to go back to Bethel, the place of blessing. And so that brings us to uh, verse 6 of the chapter, and we'll pick up the action there. It says, so Jacob came to Luz, and uh, Luz is the name of what? How do you know that? Okay, good. I'm uh, just checking. See, yeah, it says that in your Bible, doesn't it? That, it says that is Bethel. Uh, I wanted to point out that is not an editorial comment by the publishers of your Bible. That's inspired scripture. The inspired writer, Moses, is just helping us to see that before the place was named Bethel, it was called Luz. Now, I know in Spanish, Luz means light. And uh, whether it means that in Hebrew or not, I don't know. I don't know. It would be cool if it did. Then we'd see Jacob coming back to the place of light. So I'll have to look it up. Anyway, he comes to Luz. That is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. So that's modern-day Israel. It was called the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. Just to give you a geographic frame of reference, Bethel is located 10 miles north of present-day Jerusalem. So if you see Jerusalem in the news or on a map, go just a few miles north and that's where Bethel was and it says he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother so he deceived his brother Esau you know about this Esau's mad Uh, Jacob's mother Rebecca says to him leave until your brother calms down, then come back. She is implying it'll just be a short time. Jacob listens to his mother. That probably was his downfall. He always listened to mama. And uh, it wasn't a short time of absence. It was 20 years. And by the time he gets back to the land, she had passed on. So he never got to see his mother. She never got to see her son. Anyway, when he leaves the area... Uh, at the advice of his mom, he stops at a place which he named Bethel. First, it was known as Luz. And there he had this, as you recall, amazing vision of a ladder extending from heaven down to earth and angels ascending and descending on it. He hears the voice of God, God assuring him wherever you go, I'll be with you. I'll make sure your needs are met and I'll bring you back to this place. That's what God said. Jacob is overwhelmed with this Confrontation with God names the place Beit El, House of God. This is where he said I came to grips with the presence of God. Now, thirty years later, he's back to that place of blessing, but now he doesn't call it Beit El. He calls it El Beit El. Now, if Beth, what does Beth El mean? House of God. So then, what do you think El? Bethel means the God of the house of God. Now, listen, this shows us growth in Jacob's spiritual life. By the way, you come to know the Lord Jesus, you accept him as Savior, it is a done deal. He will never let you go. However, that just begins the growth process, and none of us have arrived. It's a growing process. We're seeing that growth process in Jacob's life. He met up with God at Bethel 30 years go by. He's squandered a lot of years, gotten into big trouble, but it's not too late. He comes back to the place of blessing. Hitherto, he called it Bethel, the house of God. Now he calls it the God of the house of God. How does that change? At one time earlier, he was focused on the place of God, But now he's focused on the God of that place. See the difference? Later in Israel's history, she will focus on the ark of God instead of the God of the ark. Is it possible for you and I, even today, maybe to be unduly focused with the church of God instead of the God of this church? Isn't that possible? Sometimes you can get so distracted by church stuff, policies, procedures, meetings, and administration, which is all good, don't misunderstand, but that's not the real reason why we're coming to to this church. We're coming to the church of God to worship the God of the church. Everything else is circumference. He's the He's the hub. So, so for Jacob to call this place El Bethel shows growth. He's growing. He hasn't finished the journey yet, nor have you or I, but at least now he's back on the right track. And God wanted him to come back to this place so as to remember his first love. Jacob, do you remember the day when I communicated myself to you, when you came to know me in a real way? Remember the assurance you had, the promises I made. Do you remember how it was to be in communion, to be close? And so God wants Jacob to leave Shechem, come back to Bethel. We would call that, uh, he wants Jacob to be revived, renewed, rededicated. By the way, you can only be revived if you already know God. Revival is not for unsaved people evangelism is for unsaved people. Revival is for those who've already been evangelized but have drifted. They need to be revived. And one of the ways to do it is to go back to the place of blessing. I mentioned this a little bit last week. Try to remember the early days of your walk with the Lord Jesus. What were they like? Duplicate them. Oh, I remember every night before I went to bed, I read a little bit in the Bible. Well, do it again. I remember every morning when I got up, I started the day by addressing God, thanking Him for sleep and asking Him to use me today. Well, do it again. I remember the early days when I was actively serving in church and feeling so satisfied for doing it. Well, do it again. I remember the early days when this, that, and the other thing. So it's not rocket science. Go back to Bethel. That's how you... that's the cure for a drift from God. Okay, so Jacob's there. Uh, good things are happening, but then you read verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. Rebecca was Jacob's mother. Rebe- uh, uh, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under the oak. And it was named Alan bakuth So here's the deal. Jacob is looking forward, I'm sure, in his journey back to the land to a reunion with his mother. But there is no mother to be reunited with. She really miscalculated. She died. Rebecca is gone. Jacob will not have a reunion with his mother. But the last connection to his mom is Deborah, his mom's nurse. The nurse, Deborah, probably knew Jacob from the time he was born. Now he's a grown man. This is the last vestige of connection to his beloved and now absent mom, Deborah. Now Deborah dies. And this is not the only death recorded in this chapter. What can we learn from it? Look, folks, you can be right with God. You can get it together. You can change your direction. You can go back to Bethel. But that still doesn't make you immune to the pains and losses and hurts of life. So if someone is selling to you Christianity on this basis, turn your life over to Jesus, and it will always be smooth sailing. That person doesn't know what he's talking about. It is not smooth sailing, even for believers. One would like to think if God is sovereign and if God is good, and if I turn myself over to him, it will be smooth sailing. No, that's not true. It is true that God is sovereign and God is good, but his goodness is different than we think. Because he's so good to us, he wants that, which is a benefit to us eternally, not just temporally. So he's willing to allow things to come our way loss of a job loss of health loss of a loved one he's not punishing us he's allowing these things to come our way with the view towards enhancing our dependence on him he wants us to run to him just as Jacob did he wants us to pursue the personal relationship with him in private and publicly declare it to others you see God wants to enhance that, which will give us a reward in heaven, because God is eternal, and we don't have any idea what that means, eternity. We know it's our uh, inheritance, eternity, but we don't understand the concept because we are time-bound. Today is Sunday. Tomorrow is Monday. That's how we live. We're locked in time, but God is outside of time. So he's willing to allow some losses and pains in this time, because this time, in terms of eternity, is like no time as far as God is concerned. So uh, you see here, hot on the heels of Jacob getting it together, he suffers this particular loss. This is the normal Christian life, by the way. So Deborah passes away, and uh, the place where she was buried is called in Hebrew Alan Bakuth, which means the oak of weeping, which shows us that Jacob grieved and suffered. By the way, the premier example of the fact that sonship is not inconsistent with suffering is the Lord Jesus himself. He was a son of God last time I checked. In fact, the father said, This is my only begotten son. But look what he went through. So suffering is not inconsistent with sonship. If it wasn't for Jesus, it won't be for us. It surely wasn't for Jacob. So hot on the heels of his recommitment, a very close person to him passes away and is buried at the oak of weeping. And then, verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. So everything is changing in Jacob's life. His whole life, the past 30 years, have been fluctuating moods and circumstances and all the rest. Um, And now God wants to remind him, it seems to me, in verse 10, of the unchangeable. So here it is. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And thus he called him Israel. Does that sound familiar? That happened before, didn't it? Is God forgetful? Why is he repeating himself? Look, way back in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28, let me read this to you. God said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. In chapter 32, God said the very thing he is repeating here. In chapter 35, God changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel a long time ago. It indicating a change in relationship with God. Why is God saying the exact same thing to Jacob here in verse 10? Does anyone have any thoughts about it? Or I'll make something up if you don't. I'll just. Yeah, listen, Tom, you're almost right. In, he didn't forget in an intellectual sense, but he forgot in a practical day-to-day sense. He still lived as Jacob, though God had transformed his life. And we are prone to do the same thing. Look, the Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's, that's the key, in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. But do you and I always live in light of our new status? And we don't. In fact, most of us as Christians are living below our status. Listen, God promoted us to sonship and daughtership. He, he adopted us into his family. He said, you can call me, when you address me, you can say our father. He's done all that. He says, uh, you're a people for my own possession. That's what he says. You're, you're, you're a holy nation, a chosen priesthood, a people from my own. That's what he says. Wow. So God has given us a promotion and most of us live way below it. So we're still living as Jacob, even though God made the change and now calls us Israel. That's the point. Most of us need reminders of who we are in Christ so that we can live up to it. Jacob, even though he was transformed in Genesis 32, you might say born anew, And changed he still continued to live as Jacob and so God had to remind him your name is Jacob you think but I changed it to Israel and just even though the many changes let me remind you of the unchangeable this never changes Jacob what I say I will do Jacob when I make a promise I keep it you've had your ups and downs all kinds of changes but one thing never changes my word to you and that's what God is reassuring him of. Listen, if you're a drifting Christian, by the way, I'm glad you're here today. If you know better than what you're doing, if you know this Jesus to be the one who suffered and died for your sins, and you've reckoned on him at one point in your life, you've, you've laid hold on his grace and all the rest, but have lived life as if he's not there. That would make you not an atheist, but a practical atheist. You believe in God, but in practice, you've lived as if there is no God. Well, if that's you, you may be thinking it's too late now. I've lost my way. Uh, If it was up to you, you're correct, but it's not. You see, God had his eye on Jacob when Jacob was at Shechem just as much as he did at Bethel. The unchangeable God never loses sight of those who are his, even though those who are his can sometimes lose sight of him. So let me encourage you, just do what Jacob did. Get back to Bethel and remember who you are. You are a Christ one. That's what a Christian is. You are a follower of Jesus, who is your Redeemer and Messiah. So uh, then God reminds him of more. Verse 11, God also said to him, I'm God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. Now, that ought to sound familiar as well, because that's the very thing God first said to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. That's the very thing. And then God reconfirmed it with Abraham's son, Isaac. And now God is reconfirming it to Jacob. He's saying, Jacob, I'm not depending on your virtue <laughs> to fulfill my promises. It's unilateral. I made a promise in particular of land to, the, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. If it was possible for you to forfeit the land through your misbehavior, you surely would have. But since the land is not connected to your good or bad behavior, it's simply something by grace I've given you, you cannot forfeit it. So in spite of all the crazy stuff you've done in 30 years of your life, I am now reminding you of the unalterable promise which I made through Abraham, confirmed to Isaac, and now reconfirmed to you, Jacob, you see. By the way, this is the best argument for Israel's presence in the land today. If we argue from the point of view of Israel's virtue, we will lose the argument because you and I can point out many examples of the Israeli government or populace doing that which is wrong, for sure. It is not on the basis of virtue that Israel is in the land. I don't argue that way. I argue on the basis of God's grace. Israel is in the land not because of her, but in spite of her. Why? Because God simply made the promise through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants, the Jews. It's a land promise, and God has never taken it back. Why is it important to see that? I've said this before, but forgive me for repeating it. This uh, recognition of truth is the basis for the assurance we ought to have of our salvation. Look, if God made a promise of a promised land to the Jews but did not fulfill it to them because of their misbehavior. How could you believe that the God who's made a promise to you of a promised land, heaven, how could you believe he's going to fulfill that to you in light of your misbehavior? You see? See what happens? So Israel's uh, interaction with God and God with Israel is to reveal us human nature, Israel's, and divine nature, God. Human nature, not so hot. Divine nature, gracious and in spite of human nature. Your nature and mine, not so hot. God's promise to us stands because of his nature. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Oh yeah, prove it. He said, okay, read about how I deal with Israel. I haven't forsaken them. Do so you see what's at stake here? So anyway, God is renewing the promise of land he made to Abraham, then Isaac, and now with Jacob. He affirms his covenant. Then verse 13, God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. In the meantime, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him. It was a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it, and he also poured oil on it. He's worshiping. These all worship elements. Jacob is saying, oh, this is a special place. I'm glad I'm back to the place of blessing. This is where I ought to be. So verse 15, Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. And then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. Does your Bible say Ephrath? What, what is Ephrath? How do you know it's Bethlehem? Tom is right again. Man, Tom, I'm glad you came today. Usually I'm not so thrilled. But today... Thomas saying because of what Micah said, Bethlehem Ephratah. Remember that, it, it, uh, Micah prophesized this is going to be the place of the birth of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. Why does it say Bethlehem Ephratah? Because there's two Bethlehem's in the Holy Land. One is far north. But that's not the one the Bible is speaking of. That's not the one Micah's prophecy is speaking of. It's speaking of. Bethlehem, Ephrata or Ephrath. So before it was called Bethlehem, the place of the Christmas event, the birth of the Lord, it was called Ephrath. And so that's what it says there. Well, uh, bef- when there was some distance from Bethlehem, from Ephrath, Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, began to give birth. And she suffered severe labor. So some place between Bethel and Bethlehem, uh, it's not a long stretch of land, this happened. She goes into very painful, severe labor, it says. And so verse 17, when she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, don't fear, for now you have another son. And so the midwife is doing what a midwife ought to do, and that is try to calm down the lady who's going through all this pain and discomfort. Well... Things don't work out very well. Verse 18, it came about as her soul, Rachel's soul, was departing for she died. uh, That she named him, the son born, Ben-Oni. But his father called him Ben-Yomin. That's Benjamin, Ben-Yomin. What's up with that? Ben-Oni means son of my sorrow. She's dying in childbirth. There's sorrow in her life. And so she named the son to reflect that. Jacob does a good thing. He said, No, I'm not going to label the son, son of sorrow. He's not responsible for your passing. That's not the start I want to get him off to. It's like putting a curse on him. Instead, I will name him Ben Yomin. That means son of my right hand, you see. You're gone, Rachel. I will look to him for support, son of my right hand. We named our youngest son Benjamin after lots of thinking and reflection on the name, you know. And we took pains to prayerfully select the name Benjamin. And now he goes by Ben. Ruined the whole thing. And then sometimes people call him BJ, which is even, like, further removed. So, you know, we wasted all our time on that kid <laughs> crying out loud. I'm going to call him Sue, the boy named Sue. That's what, I, that's what I'll do. I'll show that kid. Anyway, so his name is Ben Yomi. And now here's, here's what you get in verse 19. You get a record of the births of the 12 sons of Jacob from whom the 12 tribes of Israel come. Why is that important to record? Because uh, God intended to bless the world through the 12 tribes of Israel. and Now you're going to see roots. This is how it happened. And so uh, verse 19, Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That's the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So somewhere between uh, Bethel and Bethlehem is the place of Rachel's death. Jacob set up a pillar, and a monument there uh, at Rachel's grave has stood to this day, Rachel's tomb. However, it's in a heavily populated um, Palestinian area, and so they built a mosque there. And when Jewish women, it's primarily Jewish women, who go to Rachel's grave to pray and pay respects, they are oftentimes stoned and attacked. I have yet to see it on CNN, but it happens daily. So usually if you're going to Rachel's tomb, you have to have a military escort. (laughs) And so when you go into the tomb, the monument, to pray, they'll be on the outskirts protecting you. Uh, Why do I mention it? In Israel, every religious site of any faith group has the protection of the government. So in Israel, you see mosques all over the place. If an Israeli citizen seeks to deface a mosque, that is against the law. You'll see not only mosques, you'll see churches of every stripe Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Methodist, Baptist. Uh, Ethiopian, Coptic, uh, Catholic, Swedish, Lutheran, on and on and on. And you'll also see many unusual groups, like the Baha'is, which is an Eastern religion. They have a magnificent temple in Haifa. Uh, You see the famous Muslim monument, the Dome of the Rock, which carries Israeli protection. Why do I bring that out? That is simply not true in Muslim dominated countries where the religious sites of non Muslim groups are destroyed and desecrated, whether it's Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, or Christian. I point this out because this argument of moral equivalency between Israel and her neighbors is a fallacy when you look to the facts. In Israel today, there is freedom of religion. I can go, if I wanted to, and preach Jesus on any street corner. I'm not going to, because I don't think that's effective. And I think for sure there'll be at least someone in the crowd who will resent that and do something to me. However, the police and government will protect my right to do that. However, you see Muslim groups in parts of Africa burning down churches. In Saudi Arabia, our ally, there are no churches. I remember when I was a chaplain in the United States Army, we were getting mobilized to Desert Storm. We were briefed by uh, our superior, a senior chaplain. We wore crosses on our uniform next to the U.S. insignia. And uh, we were not allowed, if we were going to go off compound into the Saudi population, we were not allowed to wear our crosses. We had to take that off our uniform. We're going halfway around the world, putting our lives on the line to defend an ally that will not allow us <laughs> freedom to practice our religion. But in Israel, you can be anything, and you have a protected right of, of, of religion. It's, in, in Israel is the only place, in my opinion, in the Middle East today where Christians are safe. Where does it make that statement? It's the only place where Christians are safe. And uh, yet there seems to be an increasing momentum <laughs> to label Israel apartheid, racist, and oppressive. It just, it just doesn't stack up with the facts. Go to Israel and see for yourself. Okay, so anyway, uh, Rachel's tomb. Then verse 21, Israel journeyed on from that place. Israel is Jacob. See, he's being referred to as Israel now. Stop acting like Jacob, the deceiver. Your name is Israel. So then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Eder is probably not a, a village or town. It's probably a tower near Bethlehem, the likes of which a shepherd would get up and watch over his flocks. You can see these watchtowers in Israel today. They're brick-made. They're not very high, and they're still in pasture land from centuries, and it would be used by the shepherd community to, to watch their perhaps straying sheep. Then verse 22, it came about, while Israel was dwelling in that land, that Reuben, now this is a sordid episode, holy Toledo, but it's in the Bible. You know, the Bible is honest, and so here you go. It came about that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. So he was married, but had a couple women on the side. Now, the fact that the Bible records that does not mean that the Bible promotes that, right? The Bible is just recording human nature. This is what we look like. We make a covenant bond to a woman and have a couple others on the side. So he had a mistress, Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So Reuben, the son of Jacob, and Leah has sexual relations with his father's Concubine who was uh, Rachel's maid. Now why do he do that? Apart from the obvious, he had various purposes. Uh, here's one. Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. They were sisters. He really loved Rachel a whole lot more than Leah. Remember all that? He wants to work for Rachel. Because her father says, you have to. Then the father says, you, you, you can't have her first. Because we had a custom here. You have to marry the oldest daughter first. So Jacob is stuck with Leah in order to ultimately end up with Rachel. So he ends up with both. Whether he changed his attitude towards Leah over the years, we don't know this. But he sure didn't... He sure didn't like her very much to begin with. Let's just put it that way. So, so now... Uh, Reuben, Leah's son, is thinking, my father's favorite, Rachel, has died. There's a possibility he may now show favoritism to her handmaid, Bilhah, instead of my mother. This is the chance for my mother, Leah, to shine. Rachel's gone. I don't want my father to fill the void with Bilhah. Therefore, I'll sleep with her. Now, what's that going to accomplish? In those days, if you slept with a woman, another man's wife, or in this case, concubine, she became tainted and defiled so that the man would no longer look to her as a fit partner. Uh, Hey, you know, the guy, the guy, the guy, you know, guys, we don't, we don't mean guys don't make any mistakes. We're talking about you women. Yeah, I can't believe it. And let, let me, as a guy, remind you, as a woman, of this. This is why women should not speak in church. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was a, that was the society. You know, it was patriarchal. It was male-dominated. It was women of property and stuff like that. By, when you get to the New Testament, look how the Lord Jesus changes things. You know what he says? There's no longer any Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are now equal citizens in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why you're permitted to spout off any time you want. <laughs> Go right ahead. Let your conscience be your guide. Exactly. Don't, don't get a hernia or an ulcer. Just get it out. It'll make you feel better. So, but I mean, that's the way it was. So if a man committed this indiscretion, as did Jacob, even if Billa was a willing participant, we don't know if she was or not doesn't matter. Even if she's a willing participant, she's now damaged goods. So Reuben perceives, ah, this is how I will get my father not to consider her as a suitable substitute to my mother. And uh, I want him to show allegiance to my mother. There's more to it than this. A woman was raped in Genesis 34 in uh, Shechem, where Jacob settled for 10 years. Her name was Dina or Dinah. You know whose sister she was? Reuben's. Full sister. Because Dina was the daughter of Jacob and Leah, as was Reuben. When she was raped, two other boys born to Leah, Simeon and Levi, took matters into their own hands. Remember that? Took, picked up the sword and killed all the guys in Shechem. Then they carried off the women and children you know what Jacob did in response to his daughter's rape? Nothing. Reuben remembers this. And it's as if he's saying now, in raping his father's concubine, how does it feel, dad? You see what's going on? There's a third thing. So it's not just a sexual thing. There's a lot going on. There's something else. Reuben was the firstborn. He's going to be the heir of blessing. He wants to come into it now. He wants to exert his superiority over his father now. How do you do it? Sleep with his concubine. That too was a custom in the ancient Near East. If you want to show your supremacy over another man, sleep with that man's wife or concubine. That's what he's doing. So I ask you, the text says, and Israel heard of it. So he knew about it. Jacob knew about this. What does he do about it? What would you do about it? I mean, never mind. You shouldn't be in that situation. Never. <laughs> that was a bad illustration. You're not allowed to have a mistress. I don't know if you knew that. That's not the way it works. But anyway, what does Jacob do about it? Uh, nothing. You know, we're getting to see a bit of uh, moral incapacitation in this guy's life for crying out loud. He doesn't do anything when his daughter was assaulted. He doesn't do anything. Now, however, be sure your sin will find you out. There is a consequence. And so years later, as recorded in Genesis chapter 49, I'll read it now because I just don't have enough faith to believe we'll ever get there. There's just no way. Let's just face it. So Genesis 49, let me just read to you verses 3 and 4. Jacob is dying, and he's pronouncing blessing on each of his 12 sons. So he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And at this point, Reuben is undoubtedly thinking, oh, boy, I'm going to get something really cool. It's going to be good. But then the text continues, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Those are the words of Jacob. Years later, uh, it catches up with Reuben. And Jacob takes the blessing of the firstborn and transfers it to another son as recorded in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Let me ask you a question. Who do you know who comes from Judah? The Lord Jesus. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Who do you think Shiloh is an early reference to? The Lord Jesus. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So here's something about God. He's in control. Meaning, he can have his will accomplished in spite of us. Jacob and his family are in disarray. Jacob and his family are like us. Put it that way. But God can still get the job done. And so God and his redemptive plan to bring a Messiah to save sinners like you and I is not going to be interfered with because the blessing is transferred from Reuben to Judah, the fourth son. Why? It's surely not because Judah was sinless. It's because Simeon and Levi, the others, were guilty of horrific crimes at Shechem. So God transfers the blessing to Judah. So I want to depart just for a second, as unfortunately is my tendency, and, uh, and, uh, and just say something. Um, and it has to do with the sovereignty of God. That, that's the connection I want to make in, in what I want to share. Uh, it appears, based on what we know, and I don't think we know much, but it appears um, that our president is interested in the outcome of the election in Israel. So the present prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, Bibi for short, is up for re-election in March. He is challenged by opponents who, in the opinion of many, are not as strong a leader as he has proven to be. And strength in leadership in any country, but especially one under assault, uh, is very important. Israel must have a strong leader, not willing to compromise its security by giving up West Bank territories, by removing a presence along the Jordan River Valley, by going back to 67 borders, including giving back the Golan Heights, which was serious opportunity to rain down armament on the Israeli populace below. Any military man or woman worth their salt knows you want the high ground. You so uh, there are others in Israel, peace peaceniks, uh, who are interested in more land for peace and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Sort of an unconditional two-state solution. By the way, the proposed new state will be Jew-free. That's part of the Palestinian plan. What if Israel just decided tomorrow, to be Arab-free. Every liberal maniac, every Hollywood, I mean, Michael Moore would just have a conniption fit and Sean Penn would be resurrected. Who knows what? We'd hear from every crazy rock band who don't know what the heck they're talking about. And MSNBC and CNN would just fill, I mean, for crying out loud, But to propose a Jew-free state, apparently that's not apartheid, that's not racist. But anyway, that's the plan for the Palestinians. But anyway, Benjamin Netanyahu is not going to do things that, from his point of view, jeopardize the security of his people. As is no surprise uh, to us, uh, he and our president don't get along. They don't like each other. Our president has committed some gaffes, which indicate this in case you're wondering about it. And then of late, uh, you know, our president, uh, the State of the Union message indicated, gave a message to the other members of uh, Congress, uh, back off any insinuation of further sanctions against Iran. I got it under control. By the way, if you think we need more sanctions uh, against Iran, I will veto them. That was part of the. I'm not defaming anyone's character, you understand? That's the State of the Union. I watch everyone, I'm an American citizen, I vote. That's what he said. So that's a problem because many members of Congress uh, think that the present sanctions are not really working. Iran still seems to have nuclear ambitions. Even Saudi Arabia is nervous about this. Uh, It's a big problem. Um, By the way, they just issued a deal, one of the higher ups in Iran, they put out a hit on Benjamin Netanyahu's children so these are fine people to negotiate with yes ma'am so uh, our sister has a very wonderful question why is it that Israel is so hated by our neighbors and all the nations of the world I can tell you briefly, and, and I could be wrong about this, but I've asked that question, too. It can't be, it can't be explained in what we call geopolitical terms because it's a narrow piece of land. There's not much to it. When you look at the size of Jordan, Saudi Arabia, I mean, they've got landmass. Israel's New Jersey. You know what I mean? So it can't be that. It can't be oil. They have natural gas, but it's not like, you know, great oil reserves, at least at present. What is it? I'll tell you what its If Israel can be driven into the sea, if Jews can be wiped off the face of the earth, then God is a liar. If God is a liar, you have no business staking your eternity on him. So what explains the Middle East crisis is not oil or geopolitics, it's spiritual. It's Satan versus savior. Satan wants what Jesus deserves. What's that? Worship. Well, why would you continue to worship a God who lied? He promised an eternal covenant to Israel. He promised them permanence in the land. He said, you are the apple of my eye. And where are they now? The Jews are gone. Why do you Christians believe he'll keep his promises to you? That's why. Now, do, do the nations of the world know this? Absolutely not. But the prince of darkness knows this. And he controls leaders of the world. But don't get nervous. So, so I'm telling you something about our president, respectfully, I'm just reporting what he said. Many of members of our Congress, in my opinion, rightly understand that the present posture towards Iran is, 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 seems not to be effective. So um, the Speaker of the House, John Boehner, has invited uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu to come and address the totality of the Congress, all members who want to show up, to speak about Iran thinking Netanyahu knows about Iran. Good night, he lives in the neighborhood. He's astute, and that would be good. So that makes sense, except it appears to be perhaps a violation of protocol because the leader of one nation state is usually invited (laughs) by the leader of another nation state. And uh, not only is Benjamin Netanyahu not going to get an invitation (laughs) from our president, our president won't even meet with him Uh, you you know, when he's here. So that has really upset the administration. Uh, In fact, one high-ranking person even said, he'll pay for this. So that's not a veiled threat. It's an interesting thing. So there appears to be some evidence that our president has sent team members to Israel. They've established a presence in a building in Tel Aviv prior to the elections so as to seek to undermine Netanyahu's chances of re-election. And they're going to use methodology that was very successful in our president's campaigns. It's not rocket science. They're going to go door to door with leaflets and things like that. So they're training up Israelis now with a liberal bent to go door to door, so as to encourage a vote against Netanyahu, so that other candidates who... Uh, our president would feel more comfortable with uh, would be reelected. Now, I'm just, a, I'm just a guy from Pearland, Texas, so I don't understand all the ins and outs of all this stuff. However, are we allowed to mess around with the national election of another sovereign nation? Am I missing something? I don't think so either. Right. Oh, sure, we'd go crazy. So, 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 here's my, so here's my point. When I'm reading about all this, I'll tell you what's happening to me. Because I'm a Jewish guy from New York. I'm upset. I'm mad. I want to do something, you know, crazy. Yeah, I just want to. And then the Holy Spirit gets control of me. And, and I do something really unique. I talk to God about this. Isn't that a novelty? And in the course of talking to him, I remember, oh, God, you are high and lifted up. You're not waiting for the next news report to figure out what's going on. You see what's done in secret. You neither slumber nor sleep. I don't have to keep up at night. (laughs) And you have the capacity to work through anyone. You know what's good? To let God work through you willingly. But whether you do or not, he's going to. <laughs> I think Almighty God is using our president. Can I tell you something a little crazy? I think Almighty God worked through Adolf Hitler. Isn't that a nuts?o Thing for a Jew? Don't no no no. <laughs> I'd be in trouble. Uh, uh, Congressman <laughs> Weber knows about this. Poor guy. You can't say anything. This is very true. What a what a what a, what a. Uh, a wonderful thing. But here's what I mean. Uh, after the Holocaust, the world was sympathetic towards these displaced Jews, and hence I think we have the modern state of Israel, you see. Now, this is not to justify the Holocaust, and I think Adolf Hitler has to give account to Almighty God. I understand all that. But he, my point is, Almighty God is the commander-in-chief. He has the capacity to work through even the most anti-God national leader you you see what i mean so that makes me pray for our president his well-being his salvation i would like him to know the lord jesus just as i do because i'm no more worthy than our president is you say well how dare you isn't our president look i don't know maybe i'm misjudging sort of like you know a tree by its fruit when i look to his stand on same gender marriage uh, abortion um A big government, uh, uh, Israel, taxing the 1%. uh, 1% has got to pay. Folks, this is the craziest thing in the world. The the top 1% of wage earners um, pay a disproportionate percentage of, uh, what is it, like 38%? The 1% responsible for 38%. And the bottom 50% of Americans, just a few percent is paid into the system. Are you kidding me? So we're penalizing job producers, <laughs> company owners. See what I mean? So, so none of these things reflect to me a biblical value system and so on that basis. I'm not judging a man with regard to his eternity. I'm just I'm praying for his salvation. It doesn't look like he has the moral compass of a truly regenerated person. But it's not just our president. It's the rulers of the world. I mean, Putin, he's a peach. Oh, my goodness. You know, what's going on in Ukraine and all the rest. and You know, we shouldn't be surprised. You know, the head of the KGB, short of regeneration, doesn't solely, uh, uh, suddenly, you know, become Casper toast, Easy to get along with. Let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Are you kidding me? So things are happening uh, all over the world. Of course, you got the guy in North Korea. What is his problem? Apparently, Dennis Rodman's counsel has not helped him very much. I'm so shocked at that. So you have a tendency to put your head in the sand and say, oh, no. But even we, I want to tell you something. I'm studying the book of Romans where it says, bless those who, you know, persecute you and all of this. That was in the day of Nero. You know him? He was a bad emperor. He, he cut up Christians. He burned them alive. And That's not happening to us, is it? We're here in church today. We're not afraid to be here. Nobody's shooting at us. So if that statement in Romans could be made at an extremity of national anti-Christian policy, certainly we can see the sovereignty of God today. So that helps me when I read the headlines. You know what? I use the headlines as my prayer guide. I pray. I pray for those who are persecuting Christians. Wouldn't it be something if some key ISIS leaders came to know the Lord Jesus? Wouldn't it be someone if well, something if well-placed Muslim people in Iran came to know the Lord Jesus? Doesn't that just change you, change everything? That's our arsenal. That's our battle. So anyway, I'm only pointing this out to, to indicate God can even usher in his redemptive plan in spite of the dastardly deeds of guys like Reuben and Simeon and Levi and us, and even us. That's what the sovereignty of God means. So now... ooh. Okay, I got to finish this because I promised. But I can go real quick. You have a list of the sons of Jacob in order of moms and then concubines. And then you have in verse 27, Jacob coming to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiryat Arbat, which is present day Hebron. It says where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. So look, he comes back into the land. He doesn't see his mother. She's died. He's waiting for her. A happy reunion with his father. They've been they've been at odds, father and son. But thirty years have passed. Surely we're expecting Isaac to grab onto his son. Oh my son, who's been afar off. How I yearn to give you a hug, welcome you home, and come to a sumptuous meal and all is forgiven. You know, you're expecting all of this, but but what we get is verse 28. The days of Isaac were 180 years. He breathed his last and died. What? That's it. No hugs, no kisses. What happened to the reunion? The climax that we've been expecting is kind of an anti-climax. What's the point? Folks, you may not be able to get from your earthly father what you need and can get from your heavenly father. That's the point. Some here have had godly dads. You are blessed. Most have not. Most of us have not had fundamental needs met by our dads. Some have been neglectful. Some have abandoned us. Some have abused. Others have done none of those things. They've been there, but not there. They've been wedded, perhaps, to their vocation. And thus there's been no relational tie with children. Who knows? But this encourages me. I've told you before my father was an alcoholic. He was a loving but needy man. And because of his alcoholism, he was taken away from the family. The roles were reversed. In his alcoholic stupors, I used to have to lift him off the ground. He should have, as a dad, extended his hand to me as a son, but the roles got reversed. You know how that affects a kid? Well, I'll tell you how it messes you up down to this day. Oh, I've forgiven my dad a long time ago, but I'm still left with insecurities that I think were part and parcel of the environment in which I'm not angry about it, but I'm looking to Heavenly Father to be the perfect dad I never had. Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin and more. He's also saved us from hopelessness, from unmet needs. and Therefore, we could look to Heavenly Father for what we can't get from our earthly father. For one reason or another, it appears that the reunion between father and son was not as sweet, even as the reunion between brothers. When Jacob came back, even Esau, who Jacob thought was angry with him, even he said, forget it. Let's, you know, we're brothers, we'll hug each other. But we don't get that from dad. But I'm so glad that the Lord Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our, what comes next? Uh, He loves being a dad. And we ought to love being his kids. Lord Jesus, we do. We love being the children of Almighty God. We're no better than Jacob or Reuben or anybody. But we've been recipients of your grace and mercy and invitation to be adopted into your family. Thank you for casting all our sins, everyone behind your back. Now our interest is not sinning all the more, but living up to our new status. Children of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that though as you've not given up on Jacob brought him back to the place of blessing, so too you stand ready to do the same with us. And we praise you for your sovereignty. The nations of the world conspire. He who sits on the throne laughs. Thank you, Abba, that we know you personally. Have your way through us, in us, and through the leaders of the world. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Lord willing, uh, Brother Chuck will take us on into chapter 36 because we finished chapter 35.